Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 31st, 2013. Mm -mm. Oh boy, can't wait to give our first update on the Awakening Revival. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. What you find happening in American evangelicalism is as these celebrity superstar megachurch pastors continue to slip farther and farther away from sound biblical exegesis that what is happening is is that they're literally injecting their false theology and bad uh, reading of scripture into the mainstream of american evangelicalism and so the mistakes that these uh, pastors are making and I'm using the word pastor loosely here, I think they prefer to be called leaders, Uh, the the mistakes that these leaders are making um, are being repeated in mass by people who think that they're being fed and taught God's word when they're not. And so as a result of it, um, the actions of these corrupt teachers, um, their teaching, their corrupt teaching is literally... Uh, taking shape and metastasizing within the uh, the body of Christ. This is not a good thing. And uh, and so what we try to do here at Fighting for the Faith is take on these 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 major popular level leaders and teachers and and see if what they're saying really squares with Scripture or if they're really twisting it. And unfortunately, over and again, what we're finding from the people who are being put forward as the most important shakers and movers and and thought leaders and things like that within the visible church, at least American evangelicalism, they are not faithful exegetes. They're not handling God's word correctly. What they're giving us is a mess. It's a narcissistic mess. And so this program, if you're new to listening to Fighting for the Faith, you know, I, from time to time I have to warn you if you're brand new to listening – this program can feel like uh, a basically a large cold bucket of theological ice water thrown in your face, and um, it's it, trust me when I tell you I don't do what I do for shock value just to shock you, but you you need to hear that there is that what you're hearing it, this ain't Christianity what you're being taught it ain't biblical. 
And, um, and so the, listening to this program takes a little bit of getting used to. And if you're a new listener, give it a good two to three weeks at least to kind of get your bearings and understand what's going on. Okay, so just you know, opening thoughts there today, not, quite, not really quite a monologue. Let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. As promised, we will be getting to the Awakening Revival. Now, just so you know, uh, we, do not have, uh, we do not have audio from uh, T.D. Jakes' uh, appearance uh, on the first night of the Awakening Revival down there in Jacksonville, Florida at Stovall Weems' Celebration Church. We don't have audio for that, so we will not be doing a T.D. Jakes update. So we're going to begin our coverage of the Awakening Revival. You can almost think of it like, <laughs> well, last year... <laughs> Well, this is gonna. This is not gonna go over well. I got to think about really what I want to do this. Or not. <laughs> no, I don't. Okay, okay. I, I caught myself. I had to make an executive decision. I came really close, <laughs> close to making a comparison that would have been considered a shot below the belt. <laughs> anyway, last year um, the Code Orange revival at uh, Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. We covered it. Um, you know, for the entire two weeks of that thing. And I dubbed it the Heresy Olympics. Now, it, it makes me wonder if I need to come up with different categories of Heresy Olympics because I think that Stovall Weems has, you know, has basically, you know, took it, taken it upon himself to do a mini version of the Code Orange revival out there in Jacksonville. And it's so it's not really the Heresy Olympics, and it would be very inappropriate to say it was the Heresy Special Olympics. That would be very bad. So we're not going to call it that. But it, it, you know how in you know how in the Olympic world they have the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics. Although they're both you know a couple of weeks long, and I'm an Olympic junkie. But you know this is kind of like a mini Olympics. It's not quite the full blown thing, uh, but it's got some of the same speakers. But you know, so here's the deal. Uh, real, I mean, the fact that uh, Soval Weems considers T.D. Jakes to be a brother in Christ. That should tell you something. T.D. Jakes, despite his attempts at you know at trying to say the opposite at uh, Elephant Room Two last year, is still a modalist. He still has a false god. He still does not believe in the same god that that, that Christians believe in. Okay, and so you know he's comfortable talking about God in, in three persons, as long as by persons you mean manifestations. And manifestations, by the way, is the key term used by modalists. So you come full circle. And, you know, if you're confused about what happened at uh, Elephant Room 2, uh, go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith, January of uh, 2012, and uh, listen to our coverage regarding what T.D. Jakes said at Elephant Room 2. And it's really clear. He basically uh, it was trying to bamboozle people into believing that, that uh, his views on God are uh, morphing. Well, <clears throat> what would they need to morph from? Modalism. And so he's comfortable talking about God being three persons, as long as by person you mean manifestation, which is modalism. So anyway, so the fact that you know the uh, Awakening Revival would lead off with somebody who is still a modalistic heretic, um, that means he does not actually believe in the same God that's revealed in Scripture. If you don't know what modalism, by the way, is, um, basically it's conflating of the persons of the Trinity. Uh, here's the idea. It's, it's, it's like the ultra-unitarian version of God. God is, there's one God and he's one person, okay? 
and he manifests himself as father. He manifests himself as son. He manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. Think of these manifestations as different costumes that God would wear, or maybe hats that, you know, or uniforms, okay? And so what happens is, is that when Jesus is on the cross crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that God the Father is really up in heaven and can listen. Jesus is actually just engaging in some kind of theatrics, okay? Or when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and what happens is is that then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descends you know, it, visibly as a dove, and the voice of the Father is heard from heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, that's all pretty much pyrotechnics and special effects because um, there was no Father in heaven and the Spirit really couldn't because there's only, you know, there's only one God and one person. Whereas biblical Christianity goes with what Scripture reveals that there is one God in three persons. Not that there's three gods, but there's only one. And the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Not three gods, but one God. Yet, the Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the the Spirit or the Father. And yet, there are not three gods, but one God. If, If you're confused about this, Trust me, it's not an easy doctrine to understand, but it's clearly revealed in Scripture. And I think the best confession of this is found in what's called the Athanasian Creed. If you're not familiar with the Athanasian Creed, Google it. If you follow me uh, on uh, Twitter and Facebook and you uh, read the... uh, the daily readings we send out, um, the Athanasian Creed comes up uh, regularly in the readings that we send out for uh, you know, just not just Bible readings, but we have we have the hymn of the day, we have uh, catech- you know, catechetical readings for the day. You know, so it's a scripture reading, uh, scripture catechesis and prayer is what we send out on a daily basis on both my Facebook wall as well as on my Twitter stream. And uh, so the Athanasian Creed comes up regularly enough that uh, those of you who are following me there should be uh, familiar with the Athanasian Creed. It's a good creed to get it into your head and understand it because the precision that it has regarding what the Scriptures teach, regarding the one God who is who, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it helps you. It really helps you uh, against a modalist like uh, T.D. Jakes. But anyway, so we don't have audio from T.D. Jakes's appearance. We had technical difficulties, uh, so we we just don't have that today. But uh, there were no tif- uh, technical difficulties last night. Stephen Furtick appeared, and he delivered. I got to tell you, he delivered as expected. Total narcissistic eisegesis regarding the story of Elijah, and I mean <laughs> just. I mean, on my Facebook wall yesterday, I mean, I was just, you know, throwing it out there that, you know, I, I basically said it's, I guess it's not a matter of if Stephen Furtick is going to narcissize a biblical passage. It's just a question of which passage. Well, he he ended up going to First uh, Kings chapter 19. And so we'll be looking at that today in the second half of the first hour. So, uh, but, so let's kind of talk about real quick what we're going to do. I got an email that I want to get to. Um, spend a lo- just a small amount of time uh, answering. I've got a. Uh, we're going to be doing a, an emergent church update. Um, Shane Hips has a, has appeared and basically been promoted by uh, the folks over at Relevant Magazine. They have a podcast, and if you've ever listened to that podcast, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hearing a bunch of so-called church leaders talking about nothing. I mean, that's the the vast majority of that podcast. It's just absolutely banal, 
But um, so, you know, but Shane Hips appeared on this on the most recent edition, and you got to hear what he says. It's absolutely frightening. It's frightening on several levels. Number one, that he would say it. Number two, that the folks at Relevant Magazine in their podcast would say, "Oh, this is biblical Christianity," which basically means they have no clue what biblical Christianity is. So we're, we'll take a look at that. Like I said, we're going to take a look at uh, Stephen Furtick's appearance at the Awakening Revival. Uh, Judah Smith is appearing tonight, so we'll be uh, we'll be checking the lowlights for that too. Wondering how many times will he take God's name in vain? <clears throat> and then for hour number two, we're going to be going to Oklahoma City and uh, to uh, LifeChurch.tv and listening to. A narcissistic sermon. I mean, talk about narcissists that doesn't even understand biblical sanctification by Craig Rochelle. The name of it is My Story. I decided to start. That's the name of the. So the sermon series is is entitled My Story, and then the first sermon in the series is I decided to start by Craig Rochelle. That's going to round out our program today. Make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get to it. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, the email that has come in today that I'm going to be answering, uh, the subject line read, Sin Question, and it's from Brent in Sacramento, California. Okay, Brent writes, he says... uh, He says, hi, my name is Brent. I'm 26 years old and I've been a Christian for 10 years. My question is this. Do you have any advice for the Christian struggling with sexual sin, namely pornography and the actions associated with it? I I would love to hear your perspectives, firstly for myself and my own struggle, but also for the benefit of other men I can share with. I, I really see how this sin lowers my view of God, his word, and I know that you're insanely busy, but whether you have some time, would love to hear from you. God bless you, brother, and thank you for the work that you do. Okay, Brent, real quick, I want to make sure that uh, we handle this topic appropriately, okay? And that's this. Let's do this in light of law and gospel, okay? So I'm going to basically cover it biblically real quick, and then I'm I'm going to strongly recommend that you do something that's probably going to be extremely scary. That being the case... Um, this is the same advice that I give every man who contacts me regarding this particular sin, okay? And every man who's taken the scary advice that I'm about to give you ultimately ends up contacting me back and saying that was the scariest thing I've ever done, but it's exactly what I needed to do, okay? So, first and foremost, when we talk about pornography, we're going we're gonna to need to call it what this is, Okay? Jesus himself says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with her, okay? So, Brent, let me be the first to tell you that you are an adulterer. Now, I know that's harsh, but you need to hear this. You stand condemned before a holy and just God for sexual sin and for committing the sin of adultery. When God commanded on the holy mountain... You shall not commit adultery. You have broken that commandment. So let's call you what you are. Let's name it for what it is. Okay? I'm not trying to beat you over the head. 
what I'm trying to do is get you to understand that many men, what they end up doing regarding this sin is not call it what it is, find a way to euf- you know, basically use euphemisms in talking about it, and that doesn't help anybody, okay? especially those who are ensnared and enslaved to the sin. This sin is extremely dangerous. And what I mean by that is this. Let me give you a metaphor. Pornography and those men who are entertaining it and using it, this is the equivalent uh, in the spiritual realm, if you would, and I hate to put it that way, but this is the equivalent of trying to keep a crocodile as a pet, okay? You know, it starts off small and kind of cute, but the bigger it gets, the bigger the appetite is, okay? So this sin it's not it's not a small one it's it is one that will grow if you continue to feed it and the hungrier it gets the worse it's going to demand of you the things that you do okay what starts off just at your computer what starts off just you know you in the privacy of your home will lead to other things okay and i don't need to spell it out i think you know what i'm talking about you keep feeding your mind this stuff, it's going to literally consume you. And at the end of the, when this is all run its course, when this thing has run its course, you will be shocked by just how low and disgusting you can go with this. Okay. But see, that's the thing. Pornography is like keeping a crocodile as a pet. As a baby, it's cute and it's not as, it's not that harmful, but you have to feed it. And the more you feed it, the, the bigger it gets and the hungrier it gets and the more it demands from you. This is why scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 18, says this, flee. It says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Okay? Now, that's the law. Okay? Let's talk gospel for a second. Christ died for this sin. And he died to free you from it. He died to free you from the consequences of it and to free you from it. And scripture is clear that you are free in Christ. Okay. Now, the one thing I've learned about this sin from the people who suffered from it and have been enslaved to it is that it grows like a mushroom. It thrives in darkness and in secrecy. Okay. Therefore, the solution that I always recommend for every man struggling with this sin is a very scary and very important thing. And that's this. You need to find, and pardon me for at this point flying my denominational colors, but there's a reason for it and I'll explain it. You need to find a confessional Lutheran pastor in your area and you need to call him and you need to say, Pastor, I know we don't know each other, but Chris Rosebro from Pirate Christian Radio, he's this confessional Lutheran nut job on Pirate Christian Radio, he told me to call you and ask if I could schedule some time to meet with you to do what he calls private absolution, okay? There's a reason for this, okay, is that 
the, the reason I'm sending you to a confessional Lutheran pastor for this is because so many Christian pastors today, the solution they have only sides on the side of the law, okay? It is the gospel that breaks the power of sin, the good news that Christ died for your sins. And you need to hear, number one, you need to speak this out to somebody and say it, say it, what it is that you have truly done. And it needs to be in the presence of somebody who, after you confess the sin and confess that what you have done, will then first and foremost say to you, Christ died for the sin you are forgiven. If you, if a past, if you confess a sin like this to a pastor, and the only thing he tells you to do is, well, you need to go out and get some software so that you, and then you need an accountability partner, and you need to make this right. All they've done is bind you with the law. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. In fact, those are some fine ways to help you in in, in helping you stay free from the sin. Okay. But you need to hear the gospel applied to this. And this may necessarily mean that you're going to need to hear, you you might need to go and confess it many times. Because behind this sin is a a chemical addiction. A lot of people don't realize that's what's going on there. But behind this sin is a chemical addiction. Because when it's all over, okay, there is a very powerful drug released into your bloodstream. And so part part of this is that you are actually a drug addict. You are an addict to a drug that your body makes and releases when you commit this sin. Okay. And getting help for something like that is, you know, is important as well. But you got to understand the power to break the sin is in the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. That's why I'm going to send you to at least a pastor that I know that when you confess this openly to him in private, the first thing he's going to tell you is that Christ died for this. That's what you need. Now, I don't know of any confessional pastors in the Sacramento area. Therefore, Brent, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you call Messiah Lutheran Church in Danville, California. Okay, now I know that's a, a ways away from you, but work with me here. So it's Messiah Lutheran Church in Danville, California, and uh, you can find them on the internet. You just Messiah Lutheran Danville, California. Call them up and tell them I don't know of any confessional Lutherans in my area, any confessional congregations in my area, and I was told that you guys are confessional. Can you help me? And then work it out from there. And if you, if there's nothing in your area you need to make the trip out to Danville, then make the trip out to Danville. Okay? Because, like I said, this is this is extremely serious. This is not something that you just take lightly. You literally, at the moment, have a pet crocodile. Okay? And this thing is going to eat you. And the only way you can be freed from it is by the shed blood of Christ and the forgiveness of your sins, okay? And keep this in mind. Scripture itself makes it clear that we are to confess our sins one to another. This sin, even as scary as shameful and shameful as it is to have to confess it to somebody, it's more important that you just get over yourself in that sense and do what is necessary to speak it, 
confess it, and to hear that you're forgiven, and then work out ways in which you can bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. But you'll find that by confessing it and, ha- and hearing that it's forgiven, that already begins to evacuate it of its power that it has over you. Okay, But uh, you may also need to pursue professional help in getting over this. This is this is like I said, you have a pet crocodile. That's how serious this is. It's going to grow and literally consume you. You need to get help. And the help, first and foremost, needs to be from the point of view of the gospel, not just the law. So I hope that that helps you. But more importantly, I hope that you take my advice. And believe me when I tell you, every man who's come to me with this particular sin and I've recommended this and they followed through on it has contacted me later and said that's exactly what I needed I didn't believe you I was nervous but that's exactly what I, I needed and they, they each and every one of them will tell you to this day that's the that's where the power of that sin over my mind was broken and no longer had the lasting effect that it had so that's where you begin you go and you confess it, and you need to confess it to a pastor who's going to tell you that Christ died for it. That's what you need first and foremost. And you pastors out there who are listening, okay, when a man comes to you with this type of a problem, the gospel is the power to break sin, not the law. In fact, if the only thing you give to somebody who is struggling with these types of sins, in fact, any sin, Okay, is enslaved to any sin. The only thing you give them is the law. Well, God says don't do that. God says this. And, uh, yeah, they know that. Okay, you have to do law and gospel. It's law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The power is in the gospel. It's in the forgiveness of sins. So you preach the law to condemn and call it what it is. But it's the gospel that frees us. You can't free yourself as a sinner. You have to be freed by Christ. And that freedom is embraced, it's received and applied through the good news that Christ died for that sin and that sinner is not going to face God's wrath and judgment. Instead, Christ took it upon himself. He bled, was suffered, died for it and rose again. That's where the power is. And so many pastors... They lose sight of this fact. And so when somebody comes and says, oh, yeah, no problem. We'll just put you in this accountability group. We'll put this software on your computer and and it's all law and behavior modification, not forgiveness and sanctification. Big difference. Law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's what people need when they're enslaved to sins. I hope that helps. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We have a Shane Hips update, and then after that, a Stephen Furtick update. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
for listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend 
Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. If your pastor is only giving you the law and not actually preaching the gospel to you as a Christian, they're actually hurting your sanctification, not helping you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you're not already a member of our crew, well, what are you waiting for? Join our crew. Visit FightingForTheFaith.com. Click on the, the yellow button right there in the center of the homepage that says Join Our Crew. It's a great way to support us. It's only $6.95 every month to support us that way. And there's little perks along the way. We're currently working on our latest ebook. I still don't have a, a time for when it'll come out. But it, it's a fantastic synopsis of the Christian faith written by Irenaeus. And it's not in, uh, in uh, the, the Antinocene Fathers in that volume and stuff like that. This, In fact, this little catechism, if you would, uh, from the 2nd century went missing for more than a 1,000 years. We knew of its existence, but it was rediscovered back in the early 20th century. And so what we have is now in the public domain, but we're reworking the language on it to make it a little bit more readable. But it's a fantastic work that we will be making available soon-ish. Uh, to those of you who are members of our crew as our way of saying thank you for supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to uh, make a one-time contribution to support us, you could do that by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, and let me thank you. Thank you for your support of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We cannot do what we do without it. All right, moving along.
Voices are the sounds of the postmodern emergent philharmonic orchestra conducted by Doug Paget, Tony Jones playing second fiddle, Brian McLaren on the timpani. Yes, and that, on the oboe, that is Shane Hibbs. And oh, yes, on the kettle drums, Rob Bell. Yes, they've um, freed themselves from the limiting modernist definitions of notes and are now just being led by the spirit. Ah, this is so avant-garde. makes you want to cry <laughs> okay so that's our update music for whenever we do a, an emergent update and since shane hips is an emergent he he really is if you don't think of him in that crowd you really ought to um not only does he hang out with them he actually collaborates with them uh, creatively brian mclaren and others and uh this this guy is super de duper dangerous and uh, <clears throat> what I mean by that is is that he's not teaching what the Bible says at all. In fact, Shane Hips is teaching a theology that he concocted in his little brain, okay? And what he teaches is not actually biblical. And to kind of prove the point, uh, we're going to be listening to his recent interview uh, from Relevant Magazine's podcast called The Relevant Podcast, which if you've ever listened to that podcast, oh my, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think anybody is capable like they are over at Relevant Magazine of stretching out like for more than an hour conversations about absolutely nothing. There's no biblical substance. It's just people droning on about pop culture and things like I mean it's it's unbelievable that that would be even considered a ministry podcast is beyond me. Anyway, so uh, Shane Hips, <clears throat> he appeared on the relevant podcast. And what you're going to find here is something, something, you got to think of it alarming because obviously what you're going to hear Shane Hips say, <clears throat> I'm not going to tell you, you got to wait to hear it. He's going to say something that will just absolutely, uh, how do they do it in, on the internet? The SMH smash your head or smashing my head, something like that. This will give you an SMH moment. Okay. Uh, something he's about to say. But think of it this way. There is an accomplice in this crime this time, and the accomplice is Relevant Magazine. How is it that a Christian, mainstream evangelical magazine, you know, you know, that in this podcast goes to leaders out there in the in the seeker-driven movement and all that kind of stuff, how is it that they call themselves Christian and have no... They, I mean, there wasn't even any indicator that this that what they were hearing from Shane Hips was false. The guy completely bought it despite the fact the Bible doesn't teach any of this nonsense. Yeah, well, <clears throat> probably the uh, the setup will help you explain why. Uh here's <clears throat> Relevant Magazine to set up their interview with Shane Hips regarding his book about selling water by the river. Here we go. Shane Hips is a pastor and author he was the teaching pastor at Mars Hill uh, in Grand Rapids uh, from 2010 to last year. And he's written three books. Uh, his latest is called Selling Water by the River. 
But I was introduced to Shane Hips' work uh, probably back in 08 when Rob Bell sent me an email and he said, hey, I don't, I don't usually do this, but you really need to read this book. It's called Flickering Pixels by Shane Hips. And I don't usually read books that people email me about, but if Rob's going to go out of his way to say, hey, you need to read this, um, I did. Now, can I just ask the obvious question? Haven't the folks over at Relevant Magazine read the New Yorker uh, interview article regarding Rob Bell where he f- comes straight out and basically says he doesn't believe what Christi- Orthodox Christianity teaches and has been a liberal since really taking the helm over at Mars Hill? Okay, well, he's now left. Uh, are they not, they not aware of this? I'm sure that they are. Apparently, I mean, that doesn't disqualify you know, anything he's recommended to them at all. We continue. It was substantial. It was life-changing. It was one of the most interesting and impactful and insightful books that I think a Christian leader has written in the last decade. Shane has some amazing insight and is saying some remarkable things. And so we talked to him in the new issue of Relevant. Uh, Our very own Tyler Huckabee spoke to him. Here is Shane Hibbs. Yeah, now the music is part of their format there for that podcast. One of the things that uh, that you say is just because Christianity claims Jesus as its own doesn't mean Jesus claims Christianity as his own. Can you unpack that? Yes. I went to a, a museum once and I saw a donor wall. And the various names of donors were on this wall. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Okay, so he's asked a question. Okay. You say that you know you, you know that uh, that you know Christianity claims Jesus as its own, but Jesus doesn't claim Christianity as his own. Could you explain that? Yeah, you see, the one there was one time I was at a museum and there was a donor wall. Okay, where does the first place that he goes to answer this question? It's not the Bible. Do you know why? Because the Bible doesn't teach what you're about to hear. Okay, so he can't go to the Bible. He, in fact, listen, source really matters. Okay, what I find interesting is that there are so many false teachers out there today who make no effort, none whatsoever to actually create the false perception that their teaching actually has its origin in the Bible. In the case of Shane Hips. It doesn't. In fact, here, he was asked a question. Why is it that he didn't go to the Bible? Because the Bible doesn't teach this. But so he starts off, oh, this is time I was at a, you know. So where is the source for this? Shane Hips' experience. When did Shane Hips' experiences become the standard for what the Christian church is to believe, teach, and confess? Answer, it never has been. In fact, in the 2,000-year history of Christianity, Shane Hips has only been here for maybe 40, mid-40-ish, you know, amount of years. So 44, 45 years. That's how long he's been around, okay? In other words, we could say for the better part of 1,900 years, Christianity has gotten along just fine without any opinions or speculations or insights 
from Shane Hibbs. In fact, since we believe the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and since Shane Hips wasn't there when the faith was once for all delivered to the saints, he doesn't get to edit it. In fact, when he starts editing it, it ceases to be Christianity and Christian doctrine, and it becomes Shane Hippism. Okay? Are you a hippie? I mean, it's maybe with somebody who follows the theology of Shane Hips, we should call them hippies. Are you a hippie? I'm not a hippie. I'm a Christian. There's a difference, okay? And Shane Hips's ideas, Shane Hips's speculations, Shane Hips's life experiences, they have no bearing whatsoever on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But it's going to get worse than that because as you're going to see when we actually check some of the things that he's trying to say and try to make it look like it's what the Bible's talking about, when we actually check the references, it, it's not going to check out. Here, listen in. I went to a, a museum once, and I saw a donor wall. And the various names of donors were on this wall. And uh, there was one brick in the wall that simply said anonymous. And... What that means is somebody had anonymously given money to this museum. And the reason I think that's an interesting thing is that um, we humans give gifts anonymously all the time. We don't need our name attached to it. We, we have the ability and the capacity and the power to make an impact without ever getting credit. And what does this have to do with Christian doctrine? One of the things I think is fascinating is Jesus does the same thing in the New Testament. Really? In the, in the New Testament, Jesus is an anonymous donor. Jesus is an anonymous donor. No, he's not. And I'll prove it to you. And he comes to people and gives gifts to them even when they don't ask and even when they don't have any idea who he is. At one point in the New Testament, Jesus walks up to a blind man he smears mud on his face by spitting on the ground and then tells the guy to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Blind man does, his sight is returned. The blind man did not ask for Jesus to do anything. The blind man didn't even know who Jesus was. Jesus gives gifts anonymously. That's what the famous Footprints poem is all about. Yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. Footprints, by the way, that Footprints poem, despite its um, kitschy popularity, yeah, that's nowhere in the Bible. Just want to tell you that. Just yeah, I know it's hard to believe, but you know, as popular as that footprints poem is, not in scripture. But let's take a look at that blind man in the story of the, you know, of the healing of the blind man uh, at the pool of Siloam, okay? And uh what we're going to do here and um we're going to check to see that we're doing fact checking, okay? We're going to check to see if Jesus really just anonymously healed this guy. I mean just you know, if at the end of the story, the guy completely just, you know, it was a total drive-by healing. The blind guy had no clue. It, Jesus performed, you know, basically a, you know, pay it forward kind of, uh, you know, <clears throat> miracle and just did it anonymously. Okay. John chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work uh, the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, then anointed the, uh, the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing okay so there you go see it's a it's an anonymous healing right this is jesus just anonymously paying it forward kind of thing well no not exactly we continue reading verse eight so the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying is not this the man who used to sit and beg and some said it's he others said no it's not him it just looks like him and they kept saying and he kept saying i am the man so they said to him how then were your eyes open? He answered, get this, watch this. He, this is verse 11. He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Huh? Well, if it was an anonymous healing, how is it? that the blind man knew that it was Jesus who healed him. That's weird. So let me back the audio up here. I mean, because, you know, Shane Hips is making the claim that Jesus heals people anonymously because he's like an anonymous donor. Blind man does, his sight is returned. The blind man did not ask for Jesus to do anything. The blind man didn't even know who Jesus was. Jesus gives gifts anonymously. That's what the famous... So Jesus gives gifts anonymously. So was that an anonymous healing? Nope, it wasn't. Uh, see, now, there, see, that's that's two strikes against Shane Hips right now. And Relevant Magazine for being so biblically illiterate and obtuse when it comes to all things biblically biblical doctrine-wise that they don't even realize that what he's telling them isn't true. Okay? So Jesus didn't perform an anonymous healing here, okay? So he got the text wrong, and he started off with his own experiences and speculations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Shane Hips isn't teaching Christianity. He's teaching hipism. And if you are a follower of hipism, you're a hippie. The footprints poem is all about. Mm-hmm. It is this anonymous donation. And so what I think is important for Christians to consider is Is it possible that Jesus is at work in all kinds of places throughout the entire creation? Okay, now I'm going to stop there. So so the whole point was, now see, look in John 9, Jesus anonymously healed somebody. No, he didn't. Uh, But because he did that, isn't it possible? Isn't it possible? Well, there's a lot of things that are possible, okay? It's possible that I am the long-lost half-brother of Donald Trump. Is it probable? No. <laughs> yeah, I got way more hair than he does. But anyway, but see, this is how false teachers operate. They misquote passages. They start with their own theology and speculations. And then what they do is they come up with a scenario whereby, oh, well, if what I said is true over here, isn't it possible that it, that this could possibly be true too? Uh-huh. No. The whole thing, I deny it based upon... The fact that he's he started with his own thoughts and ideas, he mangled John chapter 9 already, 
And they quoted the Footprints poem as if it's authoritative. And now we're supposed to go, and isn't it possible? Listen, God sustains his creation. Okay, this is absolutely true. Okay, that God is the one who brings rain, who causes the crops to grow, who makes sure that we have food on our table. And he makes makes it so that the sun shines on both the righteous and the unrighteous. This is certainly true. But that's a there's a difference there between God sustaining his creation and those who have been brought to penitent faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. There's a huge difference between that. Okay? Where his name is not mentioned, but his gifts are being given. And I'd like for us to consider that possibility too. Yeah, let's just consider that possibility. No. There's no reason to. And I think that's what Paul does at the Acropolis at at Mars Hill. Yeah, I'm glad you think that that's what Paul does at the Acropolis at Mars Hill, but that's not what he does. He points them not to an anonymous God, but to the the man, Jesus, the resurrected man, Jesus. He says, you have this statue to an unknown God. Well, I know the name of that God, and he's at work among you. This is an incredible teaching. This is a, a, a shocking reality that is biblical in nature. But Christians, for some reason, have come to this conclusion that we have a corner on the market of Jesus just because we bear his name. Oh, so Christ, So now notice he made an allusion to Acts chapter 17, Paul on the, at, you know, at the Acropolis on Mars Hill. I read this the other day on the program, but let me read it again, okay? Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, Well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh huh. Now, notice Paul wasn't preaching to them, Oh, listen, yeah, you know, Jesus is here, man, and, you know, and we, we Christians don't have a corner on the market on Jesus, but I'm here to, to tell you, man, that you're so close to Jesus, you already have him, man. It's not what he was doing, okay? So he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. Uh, for uh, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the Unknown God. All right, what therefore you worship as unknown, what uh, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So now he's going full bore, going after their idolatry, right? Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind 
life and breath and everything. And he made for uh, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said that we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or the imagination of man. Okay, like Shane Hibbs here. Shane Hibbs, the God he's talking about, that's the God from his imagination. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, <clears throat> let me back up Shane Hips's comments here. Does this sound like Paul here is making a shocking statement about how, you know, G- the Christians don't have a corner on Jesus? Not even close. And I think that's what Paul does at the Acropolis at, at Mars Hill. He says, you have this statue to an unknown God. Well, I know the name of that God, and he's at work among you. This is an incredible... No, Paul didn't say, I know the name of that God, and he's at work among you. That's not what he said. He called them to repent, told them that they're idols, that's not how God works, and he called them to repent. He's preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Incredible teaching. This is a, a, a shocking reality that is biblical in nature. Actually, what's really shocking is that you're trying to make this concocted theology that you've brewed up in your own brain. You're doing, you're trying to make this sound like, oh, this is what it's what the Bible's really all about. And yet, when you look it up in context, the Bible isn't about any of this. But Christians, for some reason, have come to this conclusion that we have a corner on the market of Jesus just because we bear His name. And I'd like to suggest I think Jesus is so much bigger than the religion that bears his name. Yeah, how big is he? I mean, bigger than a barn? Bigger than one of those 787 Boeing planes? How big is Jesus, exactly? What a weird format. So, when we have an experience with Jesus, of a relationship with him, people are eager for some sort of terms or parameters to put on it, and we end up calling that religion. And we know it's not a perfect term, but maybe it's just the best thing we have. Yeah. What would be your response to that? I would say for those people that find religion extremely helpful, they should continue practicing it. Okay. I don't have any problem with it. I- now listen to what's coming next. What you're about to hear is going to make your head spin. Get ready. Hang on. I practice it. I'm a practicing Christian. That's a religion. I don't think that makes me any closer to Jesus than a Muslim. Yeah, you heard that right. Let me back it up and let's hear it again. Shane Hips just said, I'm a practicing Christian, but that doesn't make me any closer to Jesus than a Muslim. I'm a practicing Christian. That's a religion. I don't think that makes me any closer to Jesus than a Muslim. So apparently, Muslims are really close to Jesus. I had no idea that that was the case, considering the fact that they don't believe in the same Jesus 
as the Jesus revealed in Scripture. Don't you think that's problematic? I think it's problematic, but maybe it's just because I'm a, a cold-minded and you know gunky head and, and hater. Maybe that's my problem. But you see, it's really not. Okay, and here's the reason why. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul here is chastising the church in Corinth. And listen to the details of his chastisement. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent was deceived, uh, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now listen to the, so he's worried here. Why? Because people are coming to the church in Corinth and they're teaching a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Okay? Not that there is a different spirit or a different Jesus or a different gospel, but they're doing that. Now to the church in Galatia, okay, Paul had some very strong words to warn them about those preaching different gospels. Somebody who teaches a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel, they're heretics. You're not to put up with them. You're to put them out of the church and not let them infect the church with their false teaching. Here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, that would be Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be damned, anathema, cursed, right? As we have said before, so I'll say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Now, Muslims, okay, they believe in a Jesus. His name is Isa. And that Jesus didn't die on the cross for your sins. And that Jesus isn't the son of God because according to Islam, Allah doesn't have a son. Okay? So, we've got a problem here. Um, and, that, well, they believe in Esau, and Esau's a great prophet. and In fact, a prophet of Islam of sorts, if you were to think of it that way. And the stuff that we have in the New Testament regarding Jesus being the Son of God and dying and rising again, those are all corruptions and falsehoods and lies. But Islam has restored the truth regarding Jesus, and Esau is not the Son of God. He didn't die on the cross. He didn't raise from the dead for your sins. He, no, none of that stuff at all. Well... That means they teach a different Jesus and a different gospel. Yeah, Islam has a completely different gospel altogether, if you could even call it a gospel. So how is it that Shane Hips would then say something as, well, preposterous as this? I'm a practicing Christian. That's your religion. I don't think that makes me any closer to Jesus than a Muslim. So he's a practicing Christian, but that doesn't make him any closer to Jesus than a Muslim. Now, in a weird kind of way, 
I'm going to have to agree because obviously Shane Hips, by the biblical standard and definition of what a Christian is, he isn't one. So he's just as close to the real Jesus as Muslims are. In other words, neither of them are close to Jesus at all. But the point that he's trying to make here on this in this you know in this Christian podcast that goes out to major seeker driven leaders and and all kinds of people who want to do relevant ministry is that somehow Muslims are actually close to Je- just as close to Jesus as Christians are. We continue. I don't know where Jesus is at work. He's so much bigger than I can fathom. Okay, listen to that again. I don't know where Jesus is at work. I don't know where Jesus is at work. He's so much bigger than I can fathom. The power of Christ, we are told in John, was with God at the beginning, before time existed. Now listen to this Christology. The power that animated the human being, Jesus, has no birthday, has no death day. Okay, listen again. This should be extremely alarming. Okay. The power that animated the human being, Jesus, has no birthday, has no death day. The power that animated the human being, Jesus. The power that animated the human being, Jesus. That is not the biblical incarnation. That is something more akin to the New Age or even closer to Gnosticism. Listen again. The power that animated the human being, Jesus, has no birthday, has no death day. There is no place in all of creation that this power that John tells us is the Logos, which gets translated as the word in English, but it's this Logos, this power that has no birthday, that has no death day. It can occupy any place at any time. There is no place while we live that is outside the domain of that power. Now, by the way, this is just the biblical doctrine of the omnipresence of God. Just because God is omnipresent, that doesn't mean that somehow that that God then, well, he's behind every religion. And we can believe that Muslims are close to Jesus too. This is a false application of the doctrine of the omnipresence of God. And Jesus embodied that power fully. And when he left, that power still stayed. Now, many people have been hurt or wounded by religion, but they hear about this and it sounds really good. So how do we get past what we were raised in or what we've been taught culturally to do to tap into the working power of Jesus in the world? So so let me boil that down. How do you tap into the working power of Jesus in the world? Remember, Shane Hip says, I don't know where Jesus is at work, but apparently he knows how to tap into it. Well, I think the first step for anyone who would like to connect with that power. You mean connect with Jesus. Wouldn't that be through repentance and faith and trust in Christ's penal substitutionary death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins? Wouldn't that be the idea to be regenerated through the preaching of the gospel? Something like that? Um, Well, let's see what he says. Is to first recognize that you want it. Oh, so, so in order to tap into the Jesus power that's out there working, you got, you got to first realize that you want it. If you don't want it, it's not for you. Oh, okay. Jesus said 
If anyone is thirsty, come to me. Uh huh. If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me, huh? He did not say everybody come to me, but if you're thirsty, hmm. I came to help thirsty people. I came to help people who are sick. I did not come for the well. What does that mean? Would you mean sinners by that? Because what you're talking about here it doesn't really sound at all like repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So if, you, if you're not thirsty, if you don't want it, if you don't long for it, if you don't crave it, it's not for you. You don't have to worry about it. Oh, so you don't have to worry about the Jesus thing. If you're thirsty, well, then that that probably means that you can tap into the Jesus power that's at work out there. But if you're not, th- don't worry about it. No big deal. It's not for you. But if you're thirsty, that's the place to start. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and I will give him streams of living water will flow from within him. Uh-huh. So that's a sampling of the false theology basically put forward by Shane Hips, but now they, now Shane Hips has a, an accomplice. Okay, think of it this way. Okay, what we just heard was the theological equivalent of a bank robbery. Okay, and Relevant Magazine and the Relevant Podcast they were driving the getaway car. That's what happened. So uh, if if they have no biblical sense enough to realize that what they just heard was heresy and shouldn't be put forward to anybody unless, of course, they want to send them to hell, then that should tell you that Relevant Magazine is the type of magazine that nobody who calls themselves a Christian should be subscribing to. Moving along, time for our Stephen Furtick update. you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? Well, true to form, the man who hasn't found a Bible passage that he can't find a way to make it about himself, Stephen Furtick, was uh, headlining last night at the Awakening Revival in Jacksonville, 
Florida at Celebration Church. That's Stovall Weems' church. And he brought the house down by narsegeting the story of Elijah from Elijah... uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. It's unbelievable. Hang on, I'm going I'm to kill this music. And so <laughs> so um, what we're going to do right now is we're going to listen to some samples of the things that Stephen Furtick said when he was preaching at the uh, Awakening Revival last night so that you can kind of see how it all works. He's, I mean, I, literally, this guy is like clockwork, you know. I know when he's going to be visiting somebody's church that I can tune in, and it doesn't matter which passage of the Bible he's working from, he'll find a way to make it about himself and make it about you. And here's the deal. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Christ and what he's done for you. In fact, um, you would have had to listen very hard and very long to Stephen Furtick to hear anything about Jesus I mean, he got an honorable mention, for sure. But, I mean, Furtick made sure to preach about himself quite a bit. And then, of course, bring the people in the audience along for the ride. And reading the story of First Kings chapter 19, you know, of Elijah kind of fleeing from the death threats of Jezebel, to somehow be about you, it was, well, unbelievable, to say the least. And rather than talking about it some more, I think maybe what we should do is, um, well, let you hear what he did. So here's Stephen Furtick talking about uh, Elijah and, you know, from First Kings chapter 19 about how strong people in faith have struggles, just like you and I have struggles, and he has struggles. So here we go. I think we think that really strong people spiritually have very little struggle. I'm glad the Bible's honest. I'm glad the Bible put that three-word sentence in there because if all I read about Elijah was he's up on the mountain challenging the gods of, of his day and, you know, calling down fire, I, I, would think, I, I would think that I can't relate to him. But yet the book of James says in James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man just like us. And so there, there's a similarity. And, and, and I think some of you in this revival and in this season of fasting and awakening which is so exciting are cropping yourself out of the picture of what God can do through your life because you don't think you're as spiritual as some of the other people who are a part of this so i'm supposed to look at the story and to of elijah and say oh see this is what god can do with my life god hasn't exactly promised to do the same things with my life as he did with elijah okay Elijah and Elisha are like really super high watermarks in the scriptures. And they point us to Christ, not our own selves. I mean, this is, this is looking at these passages completely wrong. Because you struggle with things you don't think they struggle with. But, but here's one thing I've learned. In our Instagram, Snapchat, show you the part of my life I want you to see society. Strong people struggle too. Strong people sometimes struggle the most. And one of the reasons that we count ourselves out of the great things that God can do, we believe God can do great things, but we kind of crop ourselves out of the picture, is because we're insecure about what we struggle with. But we we struggle with insecurity. So this is a story. So the story of Elijah, okay, is a story about struggling with insecurity, like all of us struggle with insecurity. 
now we're psychologizing the story of Elijah. Because we're comparing our behind the scenes with everybody else's highlight reel. Think about it. I wish I could start a version of Instagram where people had to post real stuff of what their life is really like. We'll see all your kids smiling after they climbed to the summit of a mountain and you had a picnic lunch of Daniel Fast approved foods and prayed for two hours and recited from Leviticus 26. That's some crap. I want to see the picture where the one kid karate chopped the other kid in the throat and you threw a banana across the room. At Posting all these recipes you never cook. Pretend to rest. Pretend to rest. You've got to pretend like your life is more interesting than it is and more fearless than it is. Here's the announcement I wanted to make from the front to the back. The people who do great things for God are not fearless. They're faithful. Okay, again, this is off by 180 degrees because the biblical message is not about all the people who did great things for God. God, the biblical message is all the great things that God did through them, okay? And more importantly, the gospel, the good news itself, points us to something even greater than that, what God did for us to save us, sacrificing himself, living a sinless life, dying and rising from the grave, suffering in our place for our sins. Okay, that is the good news, what God has done for us. And that should be first and foremost at a revival, don't you think? I mean, last time I checked, okay, maybe I'm just old school, but when somebody, you know, when a pastor or, you know, a group of people would do a revival, Usually there was a lot of proclamation about what Jesus has done for sinners. But that's not what we're hearing here. Instead, what we're hearing is, well, oh, you want to do, you need to not have such insecurities about doing great things for God. What kind of God is this? I mean, why does God need me to do great things for him? Okay, I thought he's God. I mean, I don't know what this God is, but I mean, this uh, everything is off here by 180 degrees. He's literally going the wrong way. He's focusing on the exact wrong thing. The people who do great things for God are not people who never struggle. In fact, struggle is a good thing. Struggle is a sign you haven't been conquered yet. So if you're struggling with lust, if you're struggling with fear, if you're struggling with inadequacy, struggling with lust. That's a sin. So now all of a sudden lust becomes, oh, it's just one of these issues that I'm struggling with. Now we're like completely like diluting the biblical problem that, you know, that is revealed in there that we all face. And that is that we're born dead in trespasses and sins. And we sin because we still have a sinful nature to contend with. It's not that we struggle with lust, it's that we struggle with our sinful flesh.
that has it out for us. If you're struggling with an eating disorder, if you're struggling with a weakness inside of yourself that you maybe can't even mention to other people, it's all right. I point it out because the Bible says, so if you're struggling with these things, oh, it's okay. It's all right. Yeah, listen again. He just said it's okay. With inadequacy, if you're struggling with an eating disorder, if you're struggling with a weakness inside of yourself that you maybe can't even mention to other people, it's all right. I point it out because the Bible says that, that that the greatest prophet of this day got so afraid, not when times were bad. Okay, so did you hear that? Now it's, it's subtle, it's quick, but that's the problem. Okay. He just listed off a litany of things. Many of them are sins. And he said, if you struggle with these things, it's okay. Because according to Stephen Furtick's reading of 1 Kings chapter 19, the greatest prophet who ever lived, he struggled with insecurity. So, I mean, you're struggling with sin? No big deal. Elijah struggled with insecurity. That's not the biblical message at all. And by the way, the story of Elijah in chapter uh, 19 of uh, 1 Kings, it's not about him struggling with insecurity. That's not really what the big deal is. Bad. But at the time when he should have been at the after party celebrating what he just did to all the false prophets. I mean, if I'm Elijah, let's, let's recap what just happened. If I called down fire from heaven and I said... Um, I don't know what he said, but somehow him and God communicated, you know, the secret signal. I don't know if it was a hand motion or whatever, but something released and it rained. Now, if that's me and I just single-handedly standing with God, God of the Bible, put all 850 of your false prophets to shame. See, there's this woman. No, 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 no. He didn't put him to shame. They were all eventually put to death. I mean, right there on the spot. They were all killed. They weren't just put to shame. They were killed. Named Jezebel. Her husband Ahab is the king. Jezebel hears about what Elijah has done and sends a death threat to him. Um, I'm going to kill you. I'm going I'm to make your life like one of the prophets that you just killed. Here's what doesn't add up about that to me. If I just killed all of your prophets, you know, God did it, but he used me. If I just killed all your prophets in God's name. If I'm the one who just stood on the mountain and called down fire and all your prophets tried to call down fire and they couldn't. And all your prophets started cutting themselves to try to get their God's attention, but their God didn't respond because he's not real. I'm not scared of your threat. I'm not, you know, you send a message to me. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Cause isn't he so great? I mean, yeah. Furtick is so much better than like Elijah and Elisha and like Jesus even, man. Oh, man. Too bad Elijah just wasn't like Stephen Furtick. I'm going to be like, oh, do you want some too, woman? Or something like really tough like that. Something intimidating. You know, something hard like that. You, do you want some too? You know, I'm a real intimidating guy. I would have shut her up. Because you're so great. Yeah. See? What's the point of having a biblical text when, you see, now he's talking about himself. It's all about Stephen Furtick. You fast forward a little bit more to kind of get an idea of how this Narsa Jesus went down last night. He was the one who called for a drought in Israel. He was the one who was responsible for all the cattle dying and the crops drying up. So now he presents himself and he stands up on the mountain and God wins. 
and he breathes out. But no sooner can he breathe out after the victory before another battle starts. And I wonder if Elijah wasn't just tired of fighting. So now I wonder, I wonder, is he doing exegesis or is he engaging in speculation? Answer, he's engaging in speculation. The text doesn't tell us exactly what he was thinking or feeling. Okay, We got a little bit of details. If you're going to be an exegete, a biblical exegete, you need to keep your mind on the thin rail of the words in Scripture and not wander off into, I wonder, I, you know, I wonder if, well, maybe this, because then what happens is you start asking questions like that that are not answered in the text. You're going to start answering those questions, and the origin of the answers is going to be your brain, not the mind of God or what's revealed in Scripture. Let me back it up. Here we go. Starts. And I wonder if Elijah wasn't just tired of fighting, even though he was winning. Do you know you can get tired of fighting even when you're winning? It's not just losing that can wear you out spiritually. You can actually be doing really good in your walk with God. I found this out, Pastor Stovall Weems. I can even... Now he's talking about himself again. ...even be doing really good as the leader of the church. But the struggle and the strain of success and victory can take just as much of a toll... As the pain of losing and the disappointment of loss. And so maybe, here here it is, maybe Elijah is not running for his life as much as he's running from his life. Now, pause there for a second. Um, did Does the text say that Elijah was running from his life? Or does the text say he was running for his life. Okay. Because Stephen Furtick here just said maybe. Maybe. So now all of a sudden you're going to actually preach based upon a maybe? The question is what does the text say? So let's take a look here. First uh, Kings chapter 19. I'll start at verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Okay. You'll notice, in fact, if you were to watch, if you had watched this last night, you would have watched them do this quite masterfully, okay? He's not teaching the text. He's jumped the tracks with his so-called questions. Well, it makes me wonder, just, you know, I wonder, maybe, just, you know, maybe he wasn't running from his life or for his life. He was running from it. <gasps> but the text doesn't say that. It actually says he was afraid and ran for his life. Listen again. And the disappointment of loss. And so maybe, here, here it is, maybe Elijah is not running for his life as much as he's running from his life. Uh-huh. So now we're, we're just completely taking the biblical text, erasing it, 
you know, put basically, you know, taking white out and just whiting out the words. No, see, the Bible was wrong. God, the Holy Spirit, absolutely messed up. Okay, I mean, I don't know what the Holy Spirit was thinking when he wrote he ran for his life. Huh. No, no, no. Stephen Furtick, the prophet Stephen Furtick, has discovered that the prophet Elijah didn't wasn't actually running for his life. He was running from it because this is all about insecurity. But when you read it in context, it's nothing about insecurity at all. Okay, So from this departure from the biblical text then, Stephen Furtick decides to come up with three points, three instructions on how you can overcome the cycle of fear in your life so that you don't run away from your life the way Elijah ran away from his. No joke. We continue. Job, but I want to give you three instructions from the Lord for all of you who are locked in a cycle of fear because God starts awakening stuff in you in an atmosphere like this, starts calling you, starts speaking to you, starts descending in glory and meeting with you, encountering you, personalizing his will, crystallizing things for you, starts giving impressions and ideas and concepts to you. It's a powerful thing. Notice that apparently because you showed up the uh, at the awakening revival, God's going to start giving you direct revelation in this atmosphere of what... I, I, how many times have we heard that word now? Atmosphere, the atmosphere of faith, the atmosphere of the glory, the atmosphere of the... Uh-huh. So he's... Stephen Furtick, are you ready? He's going to give... It's a three-point sermon on three, three things that you need to do to overcome the cycle of fear in your life from the story of Elijah from First Kings chapter 19. Here we go. But you're going to find yourself in the struggle at some point running away from Elijah ran away from his ministry post when he should have been standing strong and seeing God's salvation. And so there are three things God. Yeah. So again, he, he's making this the found. So the foundation is actually based upon him twisting one word rather than the word for his life. Stephen Furtick has taken upon himself to change the word to from his life to make it about insecurity so that he can then tell people that God wants you, wants you, doesn't want you to have cycles of fear and insecurity in your life. So here's three things to help you overcome that cycle in your life. God wants to say to you in the first one, you're going to love the first one. The first one is this, get up and eat. Now you're thinking, where did he get that from? So point number one. See, back in the day when, uh, you know, I used to attend a church where the pastor would give us three applications, the applications generally made sense. Okay, but what's he doing? He's allegorizing this text and narcissizing it, okay? First Kings chapter 19, I'll start at, uh, I'll start at verse 3 so we get keep the context of the story going. Then he, Elijah, was afraid. He rose and ran for his life. That's what the t- biblical text says. He ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he took and behold, and there was in his at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and drank and lay down again okay now so Stephen Furtick in his three instructions for how you can overcome the cycle of fear in your life that's keeping you making it so that you're running away from your life and from your ministry post point number one step number one eat 
what kind of boneheaded advice and application is this? The, the, here's the reality. Elijah actually for real ate because a real angel actually for real put that food there. How, how am I supposed to actually apply this first step? Let me back it up so you can hear him say it. Here we go. Should have been standing strong and seeing God's salvation. And so there are three things God wants to say to you. And the first one, you're going to love the first one. The first one is this, get up and eat. And what am I supposed to eat? Okay, let me continue with the story here, okay? He looked and behold, there was at his head a cake of bread and a hot, and on hot stones and a water jar, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights into Horeb, the mount of God. So how am I supposed to apply this? How is this supposed to help me overcome fear and insecurity in my life that's keeping me, uh, causing me to run away from my life? We continue. Let me show you. It's in the Bible. I promise. You're gonna, this is going to be your favorite verse. You're going to memorize this sucker. Watch this. Verse 5, part B. Elijah wants to die, writes a suicide note, you know, flips over his Nirvana Nevermind cassette tape. 1992, deal with it. All at once, verse 5, part B, an angel touched him and said, read it, get up and eat. It's in the Bible. Yeah, and this is historical narrative. You care to explain how I'm supposed to repeat this? Let's read the Bible. And he looked around and there by his head was a cake of Ezekiel bread, baked over hot coals, I love this. It's God bakes him some bread. God, will you kill me? No. As a matter of fact, I'm going to feed you baked bread, not fried, because that would contribute to an earlier death. I'm going to feed you healthy food. I'll give you some gluten-free bread. How about that? I love God. God's full of mercy. God is so good. Watch this. Keep in mind, this is application step number one. Get up and eat something. Have you figured out how to get up and eat anything yet? Looked around, there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again, just like a man. (laughs) Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. And so he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. Get up and eat. Isn't it just like God? That even when you're running in the wrong direction, he'll somehow sustain you for your journey. I wouldn't do that if I were God. If I were God, I would punch a hole in your gas tank. You wouldn't get anywhere if you were running from me. I certainly wouldn't feed you. And I know I would not deliver it right by your head. Where in 1 Kings chapter 19 is there a promise given by God to you that if you're going in the wrong direction, that God's going to show up and give you something to eat? There isn't. 
the only way you can come up with such a screwy idea as this is if you think the Bible's about you and that this is now a pattern that applies to your life. You see, just like Elijah was heading the wrong way and God gave him something to eat, so if I head off the wrong direction, God's going to turn right around and give me something to eat and put right by my head too. There's no promise here that he'll do that. You know, I might let something fly by you or pass by you and you can kill it yourself, but I'm not going to cook for you and bring it to you. But God is so gracious. Yeah, notice that at this point, Steve Furtick is now comparing himself to God. Yep, that's what's going down here. How many can testify that there have been times where you were actually running in the opposite direction of where God was calling you to, but still he fed you with brand new mercies with every rising of the sun. He didn't starve you, but he fed you with his love that is better than life. If you know what I'm talking about, make some noise. Yeah, quite the crowd. All right, we're going to move a little bit forward here. Uh, to the point where he, where God asks Elijah the question, what are you doing here? And let's see what Furtick does with this. What are you doing here? You're supposed to be there serving me and standing. What are you doing here? Right, because you're running from your life, not for it. Oh, this far away from your ministry post. But here's what the Bible says. He asked him a question and... And Elijah has an answer ready to give. He's been practicing this. Watch verse 10. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Giving God a news update, a briefing, if you will. What's interesting, by the way, I studied how the same thing that he said in verse 10 that was a cry of despair is the same thing he said in chapter 18, verse 22, as a statement of victory when he was standing on the mountaintop. See, in 1822, Elijah said, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, and now choose you this day whom you will serve. You serve the Lord. If you're going to serve Baal, you stand on one side or the other. He said it like a, like a, like a statement of, of, of boldness. But the thing that makes you bold and unique and powerful for God in one chapter can make you very lonely and isolated in the next chapter. Now it's not so fun. It's fun to stand for God in here. It's fun to lift your hands in here. Hey, no, I'm going to back this up because watch what he does. He entangles your life and my lives, or everyone's lives up in this text as if we're in this text. Listen carefully. It's very subtle. He said it like a, like a, like a statement of, of boldness. But the thing that makes you bold and unique and powerful for God in one chapter can make you very lonely and isolated in the next chapter. The thing that makes me bold for God in one chapter makes me isolated in another chapter? There are no chapters of the Bible written about my life or your life. What are you doing to the Bible here? Now it's not so fun. It's fun to stand for God in here. It's fun to lift your hands in here. It's fun to testify in here. But 
the same passion that courses through your veins in here that makes this exciting can make you a freak in your school, can make you the person nobody wants to hang out with at work. And then you got to decide, do I have an inner strength and resolve in the name of the Lord? Is, is he my tower? He said, he said, God, I'm... Yeah, so apparently, the, I mean, this text is just all about you. I'm ready to be done with this now. It's enough. They're trying to kill me too. He knows they can't kill him. He's already seen they can't kill him. But it's a struggle. See, he's not afraid of what they might do. He's afraid of what he has to face. Just going back another round. I I can't take this stress anymore. Even if I win again, I just don't want to go back in that cage. The Lord said something to him. And this is the second thing I wanted to tell you. Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Point number two. I think God wants to tell some of you to go out and stand. So point number two. So point number one, if you want to overcome the cycle of fear and uh, insecurity in your life, uh, rise and take something to eat. And then some of the Lord's telling some of you to go outside and stand. Listen again. This is point number two. On the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Point number two. I think God wants to tell some of you to go out and stand. Tonight, the next time you find yourself running, I think the Lord, the word of the Lord that would come to you. The word of the Lord that would come to me. Direct revelation. And quicken you. It's his invitation. He said, go out and stand. Go out. No, he's not telling you or I to go out and stand anywhere. This was a specific event in history spoken to a very specific person by God. In a very historical context, this is not a pattern that you follow to overcome insecurity and fear in your life. Out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. I want to meet with you. We're, we're standing on the mountain tonight, this week. We've been called into a time of consecration to stand. We are Mount Zion. We are God's people. We are his chosen dwelling place. You know, the devil. Preaching about themselves again. We are, we are. Oh, yeah, yeah. Aren't we great? Kind of awkward, but I'll take what I can get. Yes. It's a, it's a miscalculation that the devil let you get here to this revival. Because if he can... Yeah, based on this Bible twisting, I'm fairly certain that the devil was doing everything he could to get as many people to that revival as possible. He can keep you in the cave. He can tell you whatever he wants to tell you. (laughs) What? (laughs) If he could do what? Hang on. Because if he can keep you in the cave, he can tell you whatever he wants to tell you. so absurd yeah you know because if the devil can keep you in the cave and keep you from having you know rising and taking something to eat and going outside and standing then then he's gonna defeat you so are you in the cave right now this is absolutely nonsensical this is utter gobbledygook 
And he, can, and he can trick you into believing whatever he wants to trick you into believing that you're ugly, that you're worthless, that you're stupid, that there's no hope for you, that the divorce was the end of you, that the abortion is going to define you, and that nobody could ever love you. But if you get out of the cave and get in the presence of God, yeah, get out of that. You got to see, got to get out of the cave and go stand outside and stand on the mountain his lies aren't going to bounce around the echo chamber that that's that's why we came that's why it's important you come back Uh, enough done so that's the sampling of the things that Stephen Furtick said last night and it was just utter narcissistic eisegesis and the reason he was able to make the point that he did is because he changed one word in the text one word a lot from the from the in the sentence Elijah Elijah ran for his life he changed it to from because he said maybe just maybe he was running from his life and then he can change the whole story make it about insecurity and how you and then look at his life as a pattern for you know steps that you can take to overcome insecurity and fear in your life because that's what this biblical text is all about it's all about you applying steps to overcome insecurity Hog wash. It's not about any of that. In fact, it's not about you. Ultimately, it's about Christ. That's who this passage is about. And Stephen Furtick wouldn't know how to find Christ in it if his life depended on it because the only person that Stephen Furtick sees in these biblical texts isn't Christ. The only person he sees is himself. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break, sermon review on the other side of the break. We'll be listening to a Craig Groeschel sermon about, well, my story. That's the name of the sermon series. Yeah, true. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> Wipe out. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support.
come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're well into it. Sermon review time. What do you hear what Craig Rochelle is going to try to pass off as a biblical sermon? Let's do this right. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, masleration <laughs> comes to us via LifeChurch.tv in Oklahoma City. The name of the sermon series is entitled... My story. My story. Mm-hmm. The name of the sermon itself from the series My Story is entitled I Decided to Start. Yep. See if any of this makes any biblical sanctification sense to you because it sure didn't make any sense to me at all. Craig Rochelle, by the way, is preaching, if I hadn't mentioned that. He's a superstar in the seeker-driven uh, megachurch movement. And... He actually should be somebody that you shouldn't be listening to based upon his mishandling of God's word and what he preaches here. Well, yeah, what if I told you that, you know, just if you want to change your life, you need to start a habit. And you, the way you do that is by just des- deciding to change something in your life. And it could be anything. It could be fill in the blank. It could be making a decision to floss your teeth. Flossing your teeth could change your whole life. <laughs> yeah, no joke. Um, yeah, it's probably best if I not try to preempt um, Craig Rochelle. Let me kill the music, and without any further ado, here's Craig Rochelle from LifeChurch.tv from the sermon series, My Story, and the sermon entitled, I Decided to Start. Here we go. So many stories fill the pages of life. Some chapters you can be proud to tell. Others you would rather skip. The day life really turns a page is when you let God be the author of your story. Life begins to change when you let God be the author of your story? Oh boy. Let God write your story and you'll live a story worth telling. My story... I decided to start. 
Hey, welcome everybody and a big happy new year to all of you. Today we're starting a brand new four-week series called My Story. How many of you love a good story? Anybody now, love a good Don't you think this is odd? My story, okay? <clears throat> there were there was 12 guys who hung out with Jesus during his earthly ministry that became apostles, okay? Actually, one of them um, betrayed Jesus, and he was replaced with another guy who had been with Jesus for you know, for literally his entire earthly ministry. Okay, so we're back to twelve disciples. Okay, um, there were four gospels written. Okay, four of them: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, now by the way, Mark and Luke were not. Well, at least Mark, we don't think um, Luke. We know wasn't. Mark may have been. Okay. But Mark's gospel is the, the, those are the preaching notes of the apostle Peter. But and Luke, he basically conducted eyewitness interviews to construct his gospel. Okay, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whose story is told in those gospels? Whose story? Answer: Jesus's. It's told four times. Though all of the gospels, they're all about one person and. His story. Now, within the story of Jesus, there's little, little smaller bit parts for guys like Peter, James, John, and you know, and the others. Um, but that's pretty much it. They, you know, they're not the subject of the, of these gospels. Jesus is. So, what's this thing where I'm supposed to tell my story? Something's wrong here. Good story, all of our churches. I think we all do. It's always fun when you get together with somebody and you start telling stories. I got to tell you about the time when, and you tell stories. And the great news is, every single one of you have stories about your life that you love to tell. Let me tell you about the time there was a problem and I overcame it. Let me tell you about the time I set a goal and I accomplished it. Let me tell you about the time I made the right decision. Let me tell you about the. Let me tell you about the time I. 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 Notice the problem. Again, this is like Furtick. It's 180 degrees backwards. Let me tell you about the time the Lord. Let me tell you about the time Jesus. That's what we Christians are supposed to be telling. Those are the stories we should be telling funny time when I did something really, really stupid. We've got stories that we love to tell, but unfortunately, all of us have stories that we'd rather leave untold, right? Maybe even... How much do you want to bet those stories have something to do with sin in our lives? Entire chapters of our lives that we'd rather not tell anybody. Maybe even you go and try to edit some of the old stories and change them just a little bit, even lie about them or leave parts out or make some parts sound better than they really were because there's some parts of our story that we're really ashamed of and really wish that we had never been a part of. What's so interesting to me is to think back over my life and to realize how many seemingly insignificant decisions had really a significant impact on the direction of my life. Do any of you ever think about that? You go back and you think, you know, somebody invited me to be a part of the co-ed softball team. And so I decided 
to go play co-ed softball. And four of the players all happened to go to church. And I wasn't a church person, but they invited me to church. And so I thought I might as well. I kind of like these people and what could it hurt? And I went in and I heard this message and something happened and God got a hold of my life. And oh my gosh, my whole life is totally different. And I can trace it back to a simple decision to go play softball. Or maybe you were in college and you thought, I got to take in a class, some elective, and there was this one class and I heard it was an easy A and so I enrolled in that class and I didn't even care about the subject, but all of a sudden I fell in love with the subject and I changed my major and now I've got a great career based on that one simple, seemingly insignificant decision to enroll in a class. And sometimes we look back at life and say, wow, I can't believe the way that decision impacted my story. The other side is true, though, as well. The stories aren't always positive. Sometimes we look back and we think, man, I had no idea how that that, that seemingly small decision would impact my life in such a negative way. I look back and think, I wish I hadn't started that or wish I'd never said that, or I wish I'd never gone there, or I wish I'd never become friends with that person because when I made that decision, I had no idea how my life would start to unravel. Think about it this way. The decisions that we made yesterday determine the stories that we'll tell today. And as we approach a new year, I want you to think of it this way moving forward and really internalize the power of this truth that the decisions that we make today... Now, notice the ideas that he gave, okay? I made a decision to play softball. I made a decision to become that person's friend. I made a decision to go to the library. I... Those are pretty random things you're talking about here that all of a sudden can have a huge impact on my ability to tell good stories or bad stories in the future. Hi. Why is it so important that I be able to tell a good story about myself? I don't I don't get it. Okay? I'm a sinner. Jesus's story is so much better than my story. In fact, his story is so good because it's all about his mercy that he's had on me. I got to tell more people about Jesus. Didn't John the Baptist say Jesus must increase while he must decrease? Isn't this idea that Craig Rochelle's putting forward here the exact opposite of it? Telling my story and the great decisions I've made and the great results I've had in my life? That's basically making me increase and causing Jesus to utterly decrease. We'll determine the stories that we tell tomorrow. Our decisions really matter. I think back to uh, my time in college when I was... uh, considering studying for a big exam that was several days away when some guys came in and said, hey, um, you want to go to a party? I was like, absolutely, I want to go to a party. Who would rather go to a party than study anybody that I know? And so I started to go, and I just stopped, and I realized, wait a minute, I am not doing great in this class. I really need to study. And so I decided to go to the library to study. And I, I cannot imagine how different my life would be had I made the decision to go to the party instead. I went to the library, was sitting down studying. A girl from my class that I'd never met came up and said, hey, 
Craig, I've, uh, you know, I know of you, and we started talking. And our conversation turned towards spiritual things. I was a brand-new Christian, and I said, i got to tell you how God's changed my life. And she said, i got to tell you how I don't believe in God and don't like people who do. And so uh, our, basically our new friendship was based on me trying to convince her of the goodness of God and her making fun of me and calling me really, really weird. Well, about two months later, that very same girl came up to me in the business department and said, hey, weird guy. Um, there's this girl that you need to meet, and she's totally weird like you. She's in love with God, crazy with God, and you need to meet her, and her name is Amy. Ooh, baby. That was, when I look back, I think about the decision to go to the library impacted my life and that, to the point where that's where I met the woman of my dreams. And so the moral of the story is if you're hoping to get married, don't go to the party, go to the library and study, right? Go to the library. It's amazing the way the decisions we make determine the stories we tell. I want to say it again. The decisions that you make today will determine the stories you'll tell tomorrow. Why is it so important important that I tell a good story about myself tomorrow? I don't get it. So the big question I want to ask today is how do we live a story worth telling? How do we live a life that produces a story that we want to tell? And the answer, I believe, is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, which will be our key verse for this study. And as you launch this new year, I pray that this would be true of you. The writer to the Hebrews said what? He said, let us fix our eyes on whom? He said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is what? Would you all say it aloud? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, okay, that's fine. Um, Yes, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. That would require you to actually preach him. That would require you to tell us all of the great things that Jesus has done. That would mean that you're going to have to open up like a gospel text and start reading, start at the beginning of it and keep preaching until you're finished and keep telling us about Jesus over and over and over again. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's see if he does that or if he fixes our eyes on somebody else. Because so far he's focused us on him, Craig Rochelle, and the great decision that he made to go to the library. Yeah, whew, what a great story that is. I'm so glad he went to the library. Imagine if he had decided to go somewhere else. This story wouldn't be as great, but what a great story because he decided to go to the library. Wouldn't it be amazing if you let Jesus, the Son of God, become the author of your life and help you live the story that God wanted you to tell? Live the story God wanted me to tell. Huh? You said to fix our eyes on Jesus. How do we live a story worth telling? I believe we fix our eyes on Jesus. The Well, start fixing. Keep your eyes on him. Start telling us, focus our eyes and our attention on Jesus. Get to it. 
author and perfecter of our faith, and he will help us tell the story that God wants us to tell. So here's what we're going to do in the next four weeks. We're going to make four decisions, and I want every single one of you to be a part of this every single week. We're going to make four decisions. Week one, we're going to decide to start. Today, we're going to start a discipline that helps us tell the story that God wants us to tell. That would be the story of Jesus. Next week, we're going to decide to stop. All of us have behaviors, mindsets, attitudes that hinder us from living the story that God wants us to live. And we're going to stop one thing that is interrupting the story. I don't think you're quite getting the whole author and perfecter of our faith thing. Yeah, this said, fix your eyes on Jesus, not on your story. His story, not your story. The third week, we're going to decide to stay. Oh, and by the way, it's the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, just these these words have meaning. Here you're saying, basically saying, fix our eyes on Jesus. Quick, stop talking about that so we don't have to fix our eyes on Jesus. The author of our of the story that he wants us to live. No, no, no. The author and perfecter of our faith. We're going to decide to stay when it would be easier to go. Because so often we quit on something important when it would be better to stay. We quit on God. We quit on the church. We quit on a friendship. We quit on a dream. We quit on a marriage when it would really be better. We quit on a dream. Uh Uh-huh to stay, and we're going to decide to stay the course. Week four, we're going to decide to go when it would be easier to stay. Because I can promise you, every single one of you, in order to tell the story God wants you to tell, you're going to have to, at some point, and probably several points in your life, take a significant step of faith and leave what's comfortable and leave what's known to honor God. It would be easier to stay, but you're going to decide to go. We're going to decide to start, stop, stay, and go. Today, I want to talk to you about deciding to start a discipline that can be life transforming. Now, so we need, okay, so this is all about him convincing you that you need to start a discipline. Which one? We're going to find out. Um, Maybe it's a fill in the blank discipline. Who knows? You need to start a discipline that will change the outcome of your stories. Uh Uh-huh. Now, I don't want you to start about start thinking about starting a business or think about starting writing your book or think about starting um, a ministry. That's week four. Today, what we're doing is we're talking about starting a discipline. Which discipline? In fact, um, how many of you were here with us for the series from this day forward, all of our churches from this day forward? Uh, in that series, we talked about a keystone habit from one of my favorite books I read last year called A Keystone Habit? Called The Power of Habit. From a book called The Power of Habit. So we need to find, we need to, we need to start a keystone habit because you read a book called The Power of Habit. That's not biblical. And I want to revisit that thought because it is so, so, so powerful. The authors of that book um, tell us that there are certain habits, 
By the way, none of the apostles are an author of the book, The Power of Habit or whatever. Certain disciplines that when you practice those habits, they cascade forward into positive momentum and other positive habits. In the same way that the presence of those disciplines create other positive disciplines, the absence of those very key and specific disciplines create the absence of other. Wait, 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 wait. You, the verse you read said to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You've switched the object now. So now you're fixing our eyes on a keystone habit rather than on Christ. The keystone habits are not the author and perfecter of my faith or your faith or mine. Why aren't you focusing our eyes on Christ? Disciplines. And we all have them. That one certain something, that if we're doing this, then we're disciplined and, and moving forward. Or when we're not doing that one thing, our disciplined lifestyle starts to unravel. Um, how many of you remember what my keystone habit is? It is never quit what? Never quit flossing, right? Yeah. Dental hygienist around. So he's basically at this point trying to convince you, you need to get a keystone habit so that your life can have forward progress and momentum. And it could be anything. And well, his keystone habit is flossing his teeth. You just can't make this stuff up. In the world love this part of my teaching. Never quit flossing. And it's not because I really care a lot about my gums. I really don't care that much. But for me, I never quit flossing because this is the first discipline to go in my life. And when I do floss, which I don't want to do, I feel disciplined. Therefore, my disciplined mind says it's important to work out, and I do. And then I feel better, so I eat better. And since I'm working out and eating better, I... So who knew that Christian sanctification was all about identifying and practicing a keystone habit, like flossing? Isn't it weird that the Bible doesn't teach this? Because this isn't what the Bible teaches regarding what Christian sanctification is. Sleep better. Therefore, I wake up early in the morning and I do my daily version Bible plan and I go to work full of the presence of God. Therefore, I'm productive. I leave on time because I was productive. I come home in a good mood. I see Amy. She says, you're awesome. I say, she's awesome. And we have six kids because I never quit flossing. Well, if that isn't a testimony to the power of dental hygiene, I don't know what is. But what does that have to do with fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Do you see how that works, okay? Now, if you look at the other side of it, if I quit flossing, I don't feel very disciplined. And so since I'm not a real disciplined person, I don't go to the gym, and since I don't go to the gym, I don't feel motivated to eat right. And since I'm not taking care of myself, I don't sleep good. Therefore, I don't wake up on time. And when I do wake up, I'm grumpy. And so I don't do my Bible study. And so I go to work in a bad mood and people are mad at me and I'm unproductive. So I have to stay late. And so I'm going home late and I'm really late. I know I'm in trouble with Amy. So I drive really, really fast. And then a police officer tries to pull me over, but I'm in a bad mood because I didn't read my Bible. So I try to outrun the police officer only to be arrested by a barricade of people blocking my driveway. Then I go to jail all because I didn't 
Thank you. Okay? Now, exaggerating slightly, yes, I admit that. But you all have those disciplines in your life that create positive momentum. And the absence of those disciplines... If this is what the Bible means by Christian sanctification, how come the Bible, how come God the Holy Spirit didn't tell us about the importance of finding a keystone habit slash discipline like dental flossing in order to um, to have a story worth telling? End up creating negative momentum. Today we're going to decide to start a discipline that can transform our lives. And we're going to look each week at different Old Testament stories where we see um, the Old Testament people making decisions that change the direction of their lives. Today we're going to look at Daniel in the lion's den. Everybody say lion's den, which shows that even in Old Testament times, cats were a problem even back then. Now, if you know the story, uh, Daniel was uh, looked favorably upon by King Darius. King Darius selected 120 satraps. These were like governors uh, to rule the territory. He picked three men to be over the 120. Daniel was one of the three. Daniel so stood out in his integrity and his leadership skills that the king said, I want to put Daniel in charge over everyone. And the other 120 guys were jealous and said, we got to put a stop to the teacher's pet, Daniel. And so we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. Stop right there. What were they doing? They were looking for a little dirt. Let's find some trash. Let's find some reason to to make charges against this guy, but they couldn't. The Bible says they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Why was he trustworthy and neither corrupt? Okay, I'm going to pause right there for a second. I pointed this out a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to make the same point. Daniel chapter 6, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, is a foreshadow of Christ's betrayal and death and resurrection. That's just what's really being foreshadowed typologically in Scripture. This is an allegory. This is actual biblical type and shadow, which the New Testament tells us about. Okay, But... That being the case, I I need to back it up just a little bit because I want you to hear what he's basically saying. What's the reason why Daniel was able to shut the mouths of the lion? No, No joke. He's going to try to make the point that, well, just like Craig Groeschel has a keystone discipline in his life, that would be dental flossing, that means that Daniel also has a keystone habit in his life, and he's going to try to identify it for us so that we can all see, oh, this is how he did it. Okay, he too had a keystone habit. See, Craig Groeschel's habit is flossing. So what's Daniel's? Well, let me back it up so you can hear what he's going to basically argue. Here we go. Uh, but they couldn't. The Bible says they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. 
Why was he trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent? I'll tell you why in a moment. Verse 5. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So they came up with a plan. You can read all the details. They basically went to the king and they said, hey, king, we've got a great idea. Wouldn't it be awesome that for the next 30 days, no one would be allowed to pray to anyone or any God except for you, O king. And if they pray to any other God, then you throw them into the lion's den. And the king said, that sounds pretty cool to me. Let's make a law. No one prays to anyone but me. And if they do, they're thrown into the lion's den. Why was Daniel looked upon favorably? Why was he a man of integrity? Why was there no corruption found in him? Why did the king promote him in his leadership? Why did God show favor upon Daniel in the lion's den and deliver him from the mouth of the hungry pussycats? Okay, why? I'll show you why. Because years ago, Daniel made a decision to start doing something that made him into the man of integrity that he became. Okay, that's straight out not true. Okay, let me give you a biblical text. Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Hebrews chapter 11. And it talks about faith. Okay, in particular, we're going to look at verse 33, but I want to give a little bit of context. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous God, commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. So here's the idea. The reason why Daniel was righteous before God and then his life bore fruit in true sanctification is because he had faith, true saving faith. And we learn from like Romans chapter 3 and 4 that faith is that thing that by which God then justifies us. And by the way, faith is a gift. I got an email recently from a listener who was confused going, okay, I understand this faith thing, but how, how do you get faith? Faith is given to you. It's given to you as a gift by God. This is what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 say. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It's not of yourself. It is the gift of God so that no man may boast. That's what Scripture says. So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. In other words, God, through the preaching of Christ, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, makes you alive. He takes you from being a dead sinner and raises you from the dead. It's not because you made a decision to do anything. 
okay, to pray or to be good or anything like that. God is the one who sets you free, who raises from you from the dead and gives you life. And he does this through the means of the preached word of Christ. Okay, that's how this happens. This is what the scripture says. Now, what Craig Rochelle is trying to argue here is that the reason why God saved Daniel is because Daniel, I'm going to kind of, sorry, it's going to be a little bit of a, uh, you know, I'm going to give away a little bit of the plot here or the sermon. He's going to make the case that Daniel made a decision to become somebody who prayed three times a day. And that was his keystone habit that somehow, you know, made him into what he was. Now, let me go back to Hebrews eleven thirty three. I'll actually back it up just a little bit because here this is the great hall of faith passage. I'll start at verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had a friendly welcome to the, she gave a, had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So here, Daniel is referenced, okay? And the story of Daniel in the lion's den is referenced, okay? Stopped the mouths of the lions, how, were, how was Daniel able to stop the mouth of the lion? By faith. That's how. And Craig Rochelle is teaching something totally contrary to this. He's literally teaching a form of works righteousness. It borders on, on literally the, Judaism, the, uh, the Judaizers' heresy. Okay, Th- What he's doing here may not even just border on it, it may actually cross into it. To say that God saved Daniel because Daniel made a decision to pray three times a day, that's that's works righteousness. In fact, here's the here's the reality. Because Daniel had faith in God. Okay? He, his life showed that he had repentant, contrite faith in God. In fact, let me read to you a prayer written by Daniel. It's written in Daniel. You can find it in Daniel chapter 9. Listen to this prayer. Daniel is a penitent believer in the mercies of God. He doesn't know Jesus by name. He doesn't, but he knows that God is merciful. Listen to this. In the first year of Darius, this is Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a descent, sorry, by descent, a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the words of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seven year, 70 years. So here, Daniel's reading the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and he goes, the Lord's revealed that we're going to go back to Jerusalem. It's only 70 years. Okay, so here's what he does. So then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. 
Okay, why is he doing this? Because he has faith. Okay, this is the fruit of faith. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Notice he's including himself here. Who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belong open shame to our kings and to our princes and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled over us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole of heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself... As at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all of your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the, your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your ears and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. That is the prayer of one who is penitent, sorry for his sins, contrite and chastened by God's law, who trusts in the mercy of God. Think back to Jesus' story of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Pharisee and the tax collector were in the temple courts praying at the time of the evening sacrifice, okay? 
And what does the Pharisee pray? I thank you, God, that I am not like other sin- that I'm not like sinners that I that I do these great things that I tithe down to a tenth of my mint or in my herbs. And I thank you, God, that I'm not like this sinner over here, this tax collector. Right? Daniel doesn't sound anything like that guy, but the tax collector when he prays sounds exactly like Daniel. What is it that he prayed? He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, and he prayed. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Greek is actually better. Uh, you know, be propitious towards me. You know, he's basically pointing to the sacrifice that's being sacrificed right now in the temple for sins, right? Lord, propitiate me. Propitiate me. I am a sinner. And Jesus said it was the tax collector who left the temple justified, declared righteous in God's sight. That's what penitent faith looks like sounds like. Daniel has this in spades. This is why Hebrews 11.33 says, by faith, he, Daniel, shut the mouths, stopped the mouths of lions. It wasn't because he had a keystone habit. It was because he was a penitent believer in Yahweh for mercy. We today know our Savior's name is Jesus, Yeshua. And we now, looking backwards to the accomplished work of Christ on the cross, know that Christ is the one whom whom we trust. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let us fix our eyes on him. This is what scripture calls us to. And yet here, Craig Rochelle is literally pulling a con, trying to convince these people that the reason why God was willing to save Daniel was because he had years earlier set up a keystone habit in his life and that that's made all the difference in his world. No, that's not it. He was a penitent believer. He had faith. We continue. Let me show you what his decision was. Verse 10, Daniel 6. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where there was windows open toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and did what? All of our churches say loud, and he prayed, giving thanks to his God. Read this last phrase together. Just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. Think about this. Who knows for how long? Certainly weeks, more likely months, perhaps years, maybe more than a decade. Three times a day, Daniel stopped whatever he was doing, made an appointment with his one true king and God, knelt down before God and aligned his heart to God, worshiped his God, prayed that his God's will would be done in his life. Why was he successful? Why was he a man of integrity? Why was he looked upon favorably by the king? Why did he rise in influence? Because, according to Hebrews 11.33, because he had faith. He made a decision to start three times a day, praying to his God, and God transformed his story into the story that God wanted Daniel to tell. The decisions we make determine the stories that we tell. I want to pose two questions to you. The first question is very simple. I want you to ask yourself the question, what does God want you 
to want. What does God want you to want? Another way to... How am I supposed to figure that out? To phrase it would be, what is the story that God wants you to tell? The story of Jesus. Five years from now, in your life, what story does God want you to tell? The story of Jesus, the one who died on the cross for my sins. That's the story Jesus wants me to tell. Let me tell you another Bible story. I'll do a little bit more biblical teaching here. Turning your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. This is a story you're familiar with it the uh, the 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 man with the demon uh, with the demons the legion of demons okay by the way the other gospel writers tell us that there's two of these demoniacs mark only focuses in on one of them kind of the leader of them now just some people say oh that's because there's that's a contradiction no 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 if if there's two demoniacs there's at least one okay that's ridiculous okay each gospel writer has a particular w- reason for writing the stories the way they're writing it okay so mark is you know this gospel is uh, the preaching notes of the apostle peter and we're keying in on one particular kind of like the ringleader between the two of them but um, just keep that in mind as i'm reading the story now when I teach this text, one of the things I like to point out here is that this text is you, you could rename the kind of the heading on the story. You know how in your Bible there's like headings in you know different sections. You could name the heading here the twice cast out legion of demons. Okay, I know that's <laughs> miserable. That would be a terrible ending. But the reason why I want I want you to think of it this way is because these demons are cast out. Well, they're 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 kind of cast. They're cast out once, and then they're in a sense cast out a second time upon the death of the pigs. But there's something going on here, and and what you're going to see here is the difference between belief and unbelief at work. Okay. Faith versus unbelief. This is kind of the major theme going on in this story. But let me read it to you. Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Okay? Can I give you a setup here? I don't know what this guy did. I have no clue how he came to be in such a state. Okay, now... It's not safe to speculate. Not safe at all. We don't know what happened. We don't know if he was dabbling in the occult, practicing magic, or anything of the sort. It doesn't give us any of his backstory. But we know this. Whatever went wrong, it went way wrong. To the point where this poor man, literally possessed by many demons, okay? We'll get to that in a second. Okay, he's living in the graveyard. His home are tombs. He's, I mean, we're talking about death and the stench of death and dead men's bones. And it's just, this is awful. It's absolutely awful. And all day, not all day and night, he's crying out, screaming out, and he's even cutting himself. 
It's terrible. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, I'm going to make a point here. This demon-possessed man, is he making any decision to follow Jesus? No. What decision does he need to make to be healed, to have this demon come out? Not a single decision. Christ is there to rescue him, literally. That's what's happening here. Okay, one commentator I read on this not not too long ago pointed out the fact that um, you know he asked the question why didn't the you know these demons hightail it out of there right? Well, God's in control of this situation. God's running the Jesus is running the show here. This demon, the the reason you can you can basically say this it was God's will, it was Christ's will that this demon should come to him immediately. So he comes out to him and. The demons are always trying to let the cat out of the bag as to who Jesus is. I know who you are, you know, the son of the most high. Don't torment me. But Jesus was saying, come out of him, you unclean spirit. So Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, "He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs. Okay, I'll explain this a little bit more, as I, I get, but I need to finish the story here. Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Okay. Now, a little bit more of a setup here. Now, the the region of the Gerasenes, this is not a pagan town. This is a Jewish town. Okay? So, in this Jewish town, somebody, or maybe several people at this point, they own pigs, which are absolutely forbidden for Jews to own and eat. Not just a few of them, but... You could almost say a legion of pigs. Now, a legion in uh, in the Roman world was over six thousand soldiers, but here we got two thousand contraband pigs in a Jewish town. Okay. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because going back to my crazy title for this. The twice cast out demons. Now, the first time Jesus casts them out, second time they're cast out of the pigs, they're cast out by the death of the pigs. Does that make sense? The death is the occasion of that. So here we have demons twice being cast out. Jesus casting them out of the man and then into the pigs, and then the pigs hurl over the cliff. They all go into the, into the Sea of Galilee and die. And in a sense here... Jesus is judging and casting out the sin, the offense of whoever this Jewish person or persons who own these 2,000 pigs, okay? Both of these men, 
the demoniac and the pig owner, we're talking are sinners like you wouldn't believe, right? One, to the point where he's overcome by unclean spirits, not just one of them, but a legion of them. And the other, he's such a hell-bent sinner against God, against the Lord, that he owns 2,000 pigs in Jewish territory. Okay? Something, okay? Think of the magnitude of it. Okay? Now watch the two different responses. One is in faith. The other is in unbelief. Okay, so the herdsmen, okay, these were the herdsmen who were taking care of the pigs when they had these pigs had thrown themselves into the into the Sea of Galilee and died. The herdsmen fled and they told it in the city and the country. Maybe they're trying to save their skin. So the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon possessed man, the one who was formerly possessed and uh, who had been and you know, the one who had had the legion sitting there. He was clothed, and he was in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And then they, these townspeople, begged Jesus, began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demon's begged Jesus that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go, go home, go home to your friends, to your family, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, here's the two different tracks. Faith and unbelief. Jesus cast out of the demoniac these, this legion of demons. And he's not only restored to his right mind, but he now has penitent faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his Savior. You see, in his life, this this idea of Savior isn't theoretical. He really, really has gone from being somebody out of his mind, living in tombs, doing the most horrible things, cutting himself, crying out, under the control of these unclean spirits. And he didn't make any decision to free himself. Christ freed him. Now, in a similar way, work with me here, Christ also freed the, the, uh, the owner of the pigs. Christ freed him of his sin, owning these contraband pigs. He did it by judging him and taking his pigs away. Okay, and he used the demons to do it of all things, right? So he took away his sin. Okay? You you you've been basically giving the middle finger to God in his own land. Owning these pigs contrary to what the law of Moses says. Contrary to what God has told you. You are I mean, and not just a few, 2000. This is a huge herd. 
So Christ removed his sin from him, took it away, judged it. That was merciful on his part. And what's the response? Get out of here, Jesus. That's the response. Get out of here. Leave our country. Be gone with you. That's the response. And Jesus, okay. He gets in the boat. And now what happens? The man who had formerly been possessed, he sees his Savior getting in the boat, and he's going, no, let me come with you. Let me come with you. Right? See, Jesus can't preach there. Well, he could, but... Jesus is going to respect their unbelief at this point. All right. You want to not, you don't want to believe? I'm not going to stick around here. I'm not going to preach. Who's going to tell them about Jesus? Answer, the formerly possessed man gets to stand in the place of Christ. He gets to tell everybody about Jesus. Jesus leaves himself with a preacher, a preacher who's going to tell everybody about Jesus. So despite the fact that they, that one group of people responded in complete impenitent unbelief to the point where they cast Jesus out, even though what he did was merciful. The demoniac, the former demoniac, he doesn't want to leave Christ. He wants to stay with him. But Christ commissions him and sends him to preach. And he does. He goes out and he caruso. He proclaims in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. See the difference? It's not about him making a decision to get a keystone habit or anything like that. It's about his mighty Savior breaking the bonds and the grip of Satan and setting him free in a mighty and powerful way. That's what it's all about. That's what it means to have a Savior. And here's the thing. Each of us, each of us, we are the demoniac. Because sin we're born dead in trespasses and sins. This is our own state when we're born. If you think you don't have sin, that you are not as unclean as this one was, then you don't understand sin and you don't understand its consequences. Christ, your Savior, even comes to you now, calling you to repent, to believe, to have faith and trust Him. He will set you free. And the story you get to tell is not really your own story. You get to tell the world about what Christ has done for them because the same thing he's done for you to break the power of sin in your life by going to the cross, being whipped, scourged, beaten, bruised, a crown of thorns pressed into his head, his hands and feet nailed to the beams of the cross and him being lifted up and suffering and dying a horrible, agonizing death because he was taking the punishment of God for you upon himself. 
This is what he's done to save, to save you. So go and tell the world how much Jesus has done for you. This is the story we're called to tell. Now back to this masleration. We continue. What does God want you to want in the future? And I bet any of you, if you're really honest, you'll sit back and say, well, yeah, there is this one part of my area, area of my life that's not where it should be. Or, or the chapter I'm writing right now, it's not going to end well unless I make some changes. What story does God want you to tell? And for some of you, it might be um, a different financial story. And if you start a discipline today, and I don't know what that would be, you start to budget or you start to... You start a financial class, you start to get a mentor, you start cutting up your credit cards or whatever. A financial story. What a lame story. But if you start getting a hold of your finances today, five years from now, your story could go something like this. You know, I can barely even believe it, but five years ago, we were living paycheck to paycheck and we were drowning in debt. But we started, fill in the blank, and now, after five really disciplined and hard-fought years, we're completely out of debt. No more credit card debt. How is making a decision to get a budget, focusing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? It's not. This isn't Christianity. This is just behavior modification. No more student loan debt. We paid off everything but the house, and we're on track to pay it off in less than seven years. And that could be your story if you start the discipline today that allows you to tell the story later. It could be. And, and how does that story help anybody be brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? Some of you, God wants you, for you to have uh, the right priorities because you don't right now. And it could be five years from now. If you start the right discipline today, your story might be like something like this. Well, you know, several years ago, I wasn't a good husband or a good mom or a good, uh, a good uh, spouse. And I was pursuing my career more than anything else. And it was my God to me. And I, and I told myself that I was doing this for my family, but I was really doing it for myself. And, 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 I, and I, I started to come home every day at 6 o'clock. Or I started to leave my work at the office or whatever. But now it's totally different. I've got the marriage that I've always wanted. And my kids know me and I know them and I'm involved in their lives. That could be your story if you'll start the discipline today. It could be, some of you, it's, it's more of a story about the way you take care of your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You may be able several years from now to tell a story like this. Well, it's hard to believe, but a few years ago, I actually weighed 38 pounds more than I do today or 72 pounds or whatever the number is. And, and, and it's, it's so amazing because I just decided to start eating right, or I started a diet, or I started exercising, or, or I started whatever, but now I feel better about myself, and I've got a better ministry because I've got more uh, better uh, self-image, and, and my whole life is different because I started a discipline that helped me tell the story God wants me to tell. What does God want you to want? And here, I want everyone... Notice, apparently, the story God wants you to tell is how you've made a decision to put in place a keystone habit that then led to positive effects in your suburban life, that's the story God wants you to tell. I thought we're supposed to tell people about Jesus. And you said it's all about Christ, the author and perfecter of our 
faith. One of you to just take some time, whether now or later, and write down in the little blank what God wants you to want. And now let me bring the application question to you, and that is this. Based on what God wants you to want, based on the story that you know God wants you to tell, answer this question. What do you need to start? What do you need to start in order to tell the story that God wants you to tell? What do you need to start to live a story worthy of telling? And here's the key. So what did the demoniac have to start in order to tell a story worthy of telling? Because in his case, he didn't start anything. Christ just rescued him. Huh. What I want you to do is pick one thing and one thing only. Because every single one of you, you're going to be tempted to do what I'm tempted to do. I look at my life and go, I need like four things or seven things or all these different things. And, and the truth is, if you try to do seven things or nine things, you're not going to do any things. You pick one and you commit to one. You pray. You ask God, what do you want me to want? What story do you want me to tell? Then, what discipline do you need to start today to tell that story in the future? And let me just tell you a few of the disciplines that I've started because this is something that I've done um, every year since I've been married. Start one new discipline every year. I'll tell you a few of the ones that are most important to me. Um, Early in the ministry, I did not know how to stop working because there was always more to do and because I was insecure and all my own jacked up problems of trying to prove myself. And so I didn't take good care of myself. And the leaders of the church came and they said, you need to take good care of yourself. I started two disciplines, um, two consecutive years. The first year they said, you need to work out and take care of your body because basically the principle is those of you who want to make a difference in ministry, somebody said this, uh, they said, you can't have a spiritual ministry without a physical body. Pretty simple, right? In other words, when you're dead, your spiritual ministry is over on earth. You've got to take care of yourself. And so they, I said, I don't have time to work out. They said, you don't have time not to work out. So I made a decision to make exercise a priority. That was 19 years ago. Uh, I invited my friend John to be my workout partner. And 19 years later, I have the same workout partner, and we work out three or four times a week. And for a guy in his middle 40s, I'm not in bad shape. Okay? Why? I made a decision to start. Also during that period, I, I really was battling with workaholism, and the, uh, the leaders of the church said, you will burn out and you will be a casualty unless, unless you get this under control. I decided to start counseling. I submitted myself to counseling to find out why I was so messed up and why I was trying to prove myself and what unbiblical mindsets I had. And now my story is very, very different. In fact, when my children tell their story, guess who's going to be a part of it in a good way? Their dad is. You know what their story could have been? Just like so many other preacher's kids. Well, my dad neglected us and he loved the church and we didn't really feel loved or valued. But instead, because I made a decision to start and get help, now my children will say, dad was involved in our lives. He didn't miss our dance recitals. He didn't miss our 73 soccer games on Saturdays. You know, he was involved. You don't need a crucified and risen savior to make those decisions. I mean, pagans can make those decisions. I thought you said to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
You're not doing that. Involved with us in every way. He prayed with us every night, read us stories. And my dad was a good dad. But the reason that we'll tell that story is because I made a decision to start. Let me tell you a couple others. Um, when I became a pastor, I was 22 years of age. Why well, didn't become a Christian until I was 19, almost 20? And so I was a brand new Christian. And people would ask me questions. Pastor Craig, what does it mean in the Bible when it says such and such in this book of the Bible? And I'd be like going, is that a book in the Bible or is that a trick question? I didn't know. I didn't know the Bible. So I was very insecure. So I made a decision to start reading through the Bible cover to cover every year. Fifteen years or so ago, I started reading the Bible. Now I've read it through. Who's he fixing their eyes on? Jesus or Craig Rochelle? It's pretty obvious who he's fixing their eyes on. It's not Jesus. Fifteen or so times, and I'm not a Bible scholar by any means, but I know the Bible better because I made a decision to start. Four years ago, I realized that I was um, carrying too much of the weight of the church and ministry personally, and I wanted more of God's power. So I decided to start fasting 21 days at the beginning of each year. This will be my fourth or fifth uh, fast, and our staff does it every year, and many of you do it with us. I deny myself physical nutrition, and that's why I get thinner in uh, the first of the year. And, um, but I'm seeking spiritual nutrition, and the last four or so years of ministry have been significantly different and richer and more powerful and more fruitful because I decided to start a discipline that helps me tell the story God wants me to tell. So here's the question for you. What does God want you to start? In light of what God wants you to want, what does he want you to start? What discipline? Some of you, um, you might have an insecurity, might be a, an overeating problem, it might be an addiction, it might be... Um, so notice here, some of the things he's mentioning are sins. And the solution isn't a crucified and risen Savior, the solution is apparently God wants you to pick a keystone habit that you need to get started on. Uh-huh. This isn't repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Like I said, this is just rank behavior modification. A, uh, inappropriate quest for material things. It might be um, bad thought process. It might be unforgiveness. And you need to start counseling. You need to submit yourself to someone else who has the wisdom to say, here's the lies that you're believing, and here's what the Bible says, and you need to renew your mind with truth, or you're continuing to build your life on lies. You need to start counseling. Some of you, you might be, um, you might be married, and your marriage is not what it could be or should be. And you know it, but you've just been floating along. And so you may need to start something that helps your marriage. Start, you might decide to start praying together. It's amazing what praying together every day, will, every day will do for your marriage because you can't be real mad for real long if you're going to pray together. You've got to work things out. It's real hard to look at pornography when you know you've got to pray with your wife later on that day. It's real hard to hold unforgiveness in your heart when you know you have to pray with your spouse. And so you may create the discipline of praying together. Or it might be reading the Bible together, reading a book together. Or maybe you haven't been alone because you got kids everywhere and you haven't seen each other without the kids since 1979. And so you're going to start 
a date night every week. And you may look back and say, well, back when we started getting alone for two, three hours a week, it totally changed our marriage. Some of you, when you look at your spiritual life, it's flat. It's not where it should be. And so you may start making church a real priority in your life. Not just going whenever it's convenient and not just going, but, but getting involved in it, using your gifts to make a difference in it, contributing financially, being a prayer warrior for it, engaging in the, in the community of it. You may start making church a real priority. Or some of you might start to open up in a, in a community of a life group and, and have others speak into your life and, and to know others genuinely and to be known and to bear your soul and to ask for help and to have others pray for you. You may need to start being a part of a life group. Or you may need to start making God's Word a real priority in your life. So, I mean, you want to be strong spiritually, you feed on His Word. I don't know what you need to start, but chances are you do. If you seek God, this is all law and calling it law is actually, I think, kind of a violation because this isn't even the Ten Commandments. This is like some man-made set of rules that he's concocted here, some moralistic rubric that, you know, you got to, you got to, you got to, you got Can you tell me any good news about what Christ has done for me? What story does God want you to tell? Simple. The good news that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. Do you want to live a story worth telling? Nope, I want to tell the story of Jesus. Or one day do you want to be embarrassed by this chapter of your life? But trust me, practically every day of my life is an embarrassing chapter due to the fact that I still have a sinful nature. But I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because he took my sin upon him on the cross. Decisions that you make today will determine the story that you tell tomorrow. In fact, I want to show you a, a really cool story to me. And hopefully this will motivate you from 1 Kings chapter 20, uh, verses 13 and 14. I'll just read it to you because I, I believe it, it speaks very directly. Uh, this is about King Ahab of Israel when a prophet said God's going to give this opposing army into your hands. Verse 13. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? It's this opposition. I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 14. The king asked the question that we would ask, but who's going to do this? Who will do this? The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The young officers, the provincial commanders will do it. And then Ahab asked the question, everybody ask it aloud with me, and who will start the battle? Let's say it again. Who will start the battle? He asked, and the prophet said, who will? Somebody answer me. The prophet said, you will. I want to ask you a question. Who's going to start the discipline that will help you tell the story God wants you to tell? If you will, say, I will. One, two, three, I will. First Kings chapter 20 has nothing, absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with you saying that you're going to start a habit to make it so that you can tell a better story about yourself. It's not what this passage is about at all. I mean, he totally hijacked this passage. 
This is like a crime. Who's going to start it? I will. Who's going to start it? I will. Look at your neighbor and say, I'll start it. Look at your neighbor and say, I don't know about you, but I will. I will. I will. Who's going to start the battle? Who's going to start the decision today that will help you tell the story God wants you to tell? I will. I will. Who's going to start it? I will. Who's going to start it? You will. You will. Because if you seek God, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What a weird thing for you to talk about again, because you haven't fixed our eyes on Jesus at all this entire sermon. You focused our eyes on you and your amazing ability to uh, choose disciplined keystone habits. He will help you author the right story. No, Hebrews 12 says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. That's trust in him and what he's done for us. And Daniel prayed three times a day, just as he had done before. The reason he prayed three times a day is because he had faith. Why did God look favorably on Daniel? Because he had faith. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And by faith, he stopped the mouth of the lions. Why was he a man of integrity? Why was he trustworthy? Why could 120 men find no fault in him? Because at some point in his life, Daniel made what others would think was an insignificant and very small decision. He decided three times a day, I'm going to align my heart with God. And because of that decision, he was able to tell the story that God wanted him to tell. No, he had faith. That's why God tells his story. You can live a story worth telling if you'll decide to start what God wants you to start today. Father, I pray that you're done. Yeah, sorry, you don't get to pray for us. Wow, was that a complete botched misadventure total misadventure and missing the entire point of scripture. And when you check out the biblical passages, what he says here in this sermon doesn't pan out at all. In fact, the Bible says almost the exact opposite of what he preaches here. He didn't actually preach scripture. He preached habit, disciplined self-righteousness not Christian sanctification. Sad. Totally sad. The blind leading the blind. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.